the life of David, uh, walking through First and Second Samuel, and and hopefully you see just by reading those words who David was, just how important it is that we walk through and examine his life. Uh, twofold, the reason that we're walking through this story together. Uh, first of all, I think it's important for us to understand that just walking through these two books together is in and of itself an exercise in biblical literacy, right? So I think a lot of times in the church today, we fail to just walk through text and, and know what we may not know or be reminded of something we may have forgotten. So that's a big part of this, that as we go through this journey together, we're really just seeking to look at the life of David, yes, but so that we can say, oh, I forgot that was in there. Or, oh, I didn't realize that was in there. But at the same time, as we witnessed last week, to look at David's life is to be mentored from afar. It's to have someone that we can see their triumphs, their temptations, their tragedies, and that we can ourselves discover what it might be to be like David, a man after God's own heart, a person after God's heart. And what we saw last week was that David really gave us two things, two pieces for us to cling to. Uh, for us to say, all right, this is why we're looking at him. And the first was that he's an example. He's an example to us and he's an encouragement to us. An example in the sense that what we learn from David's life is that this was a man who understood what it was to have a passion that drove him to the heart of God more than the hand of God. It's something we need in our lives to be more about a pursuit of his heart than his blessing, than the stuff that he can give to us. And we see that in David's life. We also saw him as an encouragement to cling to. He's described, his epitaph, as if you will, is described in Acts chapter 13, that he was a man after God's own heart who would accomplish all that the Lord had willed him to do. And the most encouraging words there are, he was a man. He was just one of us. And for us, in our most difficult days, we can be encouraged in our own insecurity. Because I don't know about you, but I have days where I'm insecure. Amen? Where I think to myself, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough. Right? And what's beautiful is that that's not what God was looking for. God wasn't looking at outward appearances. He was looking on the heart. Interestingly, as we read that last week in verse 7, it was the Lord who said that, that I rejected the first, the eldest brother of David. Why? Because it's not about his outward appearance. It's not about his stature, which in and of itself is an interesting contrast. Because if you go back earlier in 1 Samuel 1-2, you'll find that we meet Saul there. In 1 Samuel, we meet Saul and he's described this way. Listen, there was one named Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So that's how we see Saul described. And God says, no, 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 we're not going that way. So it should encourage us. It should also encourage us in our sin, in our iniquity. David did a lot of things that God didn't want him to do. He sinned. And yet he is described as, he is remembered as one who would do the will of God. 
we're going to say stupid stuff. Amen? So a few of you are with me on that one. We're going to do stupid stuff. We're going to sin. We're going to grieve the heart of God. But what we can know is this. We can find comfort in the fact that while the enemy whispers you're done because of what you did, God says as you confess your sin, as you repent, as you turn to me, you can still experience my grace as it weaves through your life. So we're going to continue today. This week, we're going to be back, of course, in 1 Samuel. You can just know this. We're going to be in 1 Samuel for a while. Then we'll be in 2 Samuel for a while, okay? So 1 Samuel, again, in chapter 16 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 2. So if you're here in the room and you got a Bible, flip there or pull it up on your phone or tablet. Uh, those of you joining us online, we're thrilled to have you as well. We always welcome that crowd. Glad that they can be a part you can just click the tab up there. First Samuel 16. And we're going to start in verse 2, okay? So what we have is the Lord comes to Samuel and says, Hey, stop grieving over Saul. It's time for us to uh, anoint, to figure out, to set into place the next king. And by saying that, God is saying, I already know who it is. I just want you all to know who it is, right? So he sends Samuel. And Samuel's response to this instruction of the Lord is, how can I go? If Saul, the current king, hears this, he's going to kill me. I can't do this. And the Lord said, how about this? Take a heifer with you and say to those around, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. Great instruction for all of us to remember those moments where we're not sure and we think it's not going to work out. If we'll just take the steps, God will show us what we will do. Amen. Amen. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So Samuel does exactly as the Lord instructs. We'll see that more in a moment. But let's jump down to where we were last week in verse 11. Samuel's question, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the runt, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, sin and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Now that right there, uh, maybe we didn't go over that last week, but you're like, what does that even mean? Scholars are divided on what it can mean. Let, let's just be honest. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just a description. Uh, some scholars say it means he was red-faced and maybe red-headed. Uh, other scholars say that the Hebrew actually means that he was disheveled. Got news for you. You'd look disheveled too if all you did was hang out with sheep all day. Uh, be honest. Some of us look disheveled even though we don't hang out with sheep. Amen. But he, and yet he, he had beautiful eyes, which is totally weird to me that this is it. How, this is one of those weird spots. It distracted me this morning and I have to share it with every single service now. To say he had beautiful eyes is one of those weird things that like the, the Bible just throws things out for us sometimes. Think of it this way. Uh, as, as a lady, you read that and you're like, no big deal. Guys, we immediately read that and it's awkward. You know why? Because if you go to Publix today, ladies, and there's another lady standing in line. I think it was Beth Moore said this one time. And you look at her and say, you have lovely eyes. She's going to go, why, thank you so much. Dudes, if you go to Publix today and you look at the guy beside you, you're like, you have beautiful eyes. He's going to be like... Anyway, and he, was, he is marked as handsome, wasn't necessarily the best looking, but he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon 
David. So today, we get to witness in the early life of David two powerful principles that made him a man after God's heart. Today, we get to see the example that David sets for us. Now, let's remember, we are not David. Everyone say, I am not David, but I can learn from his example. That's what we're doing. We're not inserting ourselves into the story. We're simply learning from this mentor, okay? So that's David. So two powerful principles today that made him a man after God's heart. And the first is this right here. No thing was beneath him. Now, if you are a grammar aficionado like my wife, you feel free to make the T lowercase and push it up against the word no. It's okay if you're like, no, that's not right. Nothing, not no thing, nothing. That's fine, whatever. But for our sake today, no thing was beneath him. Now here's the deal, okay? Let's start painting a picture in our minds. That's what's, what we're gonna do a lot as we go through this story uh, through First and Second Samuel. We're gonna paint pictures, okay? So let's get this picture in our mind. Samuel comes to town in verse 4, it says that he came to town and the elders of the city come to meet him trembling and say, do you come peaceably? The imagery that immediately goes into my mind, maybe it goes into yours, is like an Old West scene, right? Where the stranger comes to town and all you hear, <laughs> right? And everybody's out on the front going, Ooh, what's going on now, right? Because here's the thing, we've got to understand. Now, in this case, Samuel wasn't a stranger, but as they came, they were asking, do you come peaceably? Because in this era, a prophet coming to town usually wasn't a good thing. Like he was coming to denounce. He was coming with some hardcore rebuke. He was coming to say that this whole place is burning to the ground. So here Samuel comes into town the prophet. And they say, whoa, are we good? Is everything okay? They weren't expecting him. Anyway, he comes to town and they head to Jesse's house, Jesse of Bethlehem. Samuel gets there and says, hey, Jesse, how are you doing? Let's go and sacrifice to the Lord together. He says, don't worry, I'm here in peace. Everything's good. I'm not going to burn your house down. Correction, the Lord's not going to burn your house down. I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he says this, catch this, okay? Make sure you underline this. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his, and invited them to the sacrifice. Keep that in mind, underline. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. Now, the best comparison I can give you of this. We've got to go back, back a few years. I don't really have a good one to give you today, but this is the equivalent, if you will, of all of a sudden there being news that this guy was coming to Port Charlotte a couple of years ago, Billy Graham. Not, not Tampa, not near Port Charlotte, not, not even Fort Myers, not close to Port Charlotte, that Billy Graham was coming to Port Charlotte. And everybody's like, oh, wow, 
this is amazing. And everybody's talking about it. Wink News is reporting on it. They've got live crews on the scene as Billy comes into town riding in a car. And, and they come and all of a sudden you notice, wow, that looks familiar. And you think, that, that's close to my house. And then all of a sudden you see them pull up and you're like, that's my neighborhood. And then you're still watching Wink News real time. And at the same time that you go, I think that's my house. You hear, you open the door. and There's Billy. Not, like, not today, because like, that would be really weird. And <laughs> that's supernatural. But I'm talking like 20 years ago, okay? You hear that knock on your door. You open the door, and Billy Graham says to you, hey, let's go to Movement Church together. Let's go to New Day together. Let's go to uh, First United Methodist together. He says, let's go and let's worship together. News crew follows him in hanging out there. He says, get together your whole family. That's the equivalent. Are you with me? He says, get everybody together. We can read in the text that he, he consecrates Jesse and all of his sons are invited to go. Now, verse 11, are all your sons here? Jesse said, well, yeah, there's the runt. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. Now, we don't know for sure if David was just left out in the excitement of all of this by accident or by design by his family. Could have been by accident, right? I mean, Jason, dude, let's be straight. If Billy Graham came to your house 20 years ago, knocked on the door and said, let's go to church, you might have forgotten your own wife. I hope not, but you might have. So let's not be too hard on David's family. It might have been by accident or it could have been by design. But here's the thing we do need to catch no matter the case, whether this fits into your personal view of who God is or not. The fact remains, hear me, it was God who orchestrated, who allowed that David stay behind. God wouldn't. God did. You know how I know? Because they left him. And you know how I know God orchestrated it? Because he didn't tell Samuel. Samuel was a what? A prophet. He didn't give Samuel a prophetic word saying, hey, there's one more left. Don't leave without him. He didn't say get the family together. They did so and headed out. And God didn't scream, no, 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 no. Wait, guys, don't forget Davy. Why? Because an understanding of David that no thing was beneath him we need to understand that some things just have to be done. The example for us to look to is that David saw nothing as beneath him because some things just have to be done. While Samuel was sifting through all of the options for the next king, there were still sheep that needed to be taken care of. So David did what he had done yesterday. The day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that, what he had always done. Because it needed to be done. Because it needed to be done. Hear me. We're not David, right? But let's follow that example. That sometimes we do the things in front of us because they simply need to 
be done. We don't have to have something in return. I think of it this way. Maybe you have, uh, maybe you're familiar with this illustration. Uh, I pulled this out this morning and somebody was like, oh boy, preach softly with a big stick. You got it. No, no, no. Listen, how many of you are familiar with the illustration like of a farmer holding out the carrot to, to get the mule to do what is necessary? You know what I'm talking about? So, so farmers, there was a time and a place where in order to get the mule to plow the field, what they would do is actually put a carrot or some sort of bait out in front of the mule to keep driving them to do what needed to be done. Unfortunately, I think this is how we act many times, even as Christ followers. I'll do it, but you better have a treat for me. I'll do it, but I better get something in return. I know y'all are here this morning and you're like, Nate, that is insulting that you would even refer to us as animals. Like we can somehow be driven by something so trivial. I would never in my life. Come on, do it. You know you want to. I put another one on there. Right? No, no, I know. Some of you are like, nope, 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 no, no, no. That's not me. I cannot be bought. There is no way. Nate, this is just offensive. This is just brutal. How dare you do this? Well, how about this? How about, how about if you got the spotlight? If you just got the attention. If I, just get, if I just get the applause for it, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> See? That was well coordinated and I didn't even plan it. If I, if I just get, if you can just tell me that I'm going to be seen, that I'm going to be noticed, I'll do it. See, David exemplifies for us that no, the truth is that there are times in life you do it because it needs to be done. And you do it well because nothing is beneath you. David exemplified. The words written by Paul some 1,000 years later who wrote this to the church at Colossae. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You know what your reward is? You're doing it for God. Whatever it is, hear me. Hear me, sir. You've been going to work day in and day out and the drudgery of it is just too much. You're doing it for the Lord. Mama who's home and you change so many diapers that you can't even smell anymore. You're just done with it and it just fits. No, no, no. Remember this. If nothing else, you're serving this sweet little one who is created in the image of the Father. And you're doing it for the Lord. Sometimes we do what we do because it needs to be done. Nothing else. Plainly. Simply. And though it seems mundane, pointless, perhaps perhaps even beneath you. Remember that it may be more important than you realize. Because sometimes, some things shape us for what's to come. Some things we do just because they have to be done. Some things that we are currently, right now doing, they're shaping us for what's ahead. We get frustrated, we get annoyed, we blow our stack because I just can't do this. Pause. The routine, the ordinary, shapes us. David, what'd you do today? Watch the sheep. They went from there to there. And then they went from there to over there. 
And then I had to lead them. There was kind of a tight spot that we had to get through to get to better pastures. It was a rough patch, but we made it. I had to keep one from eating something that they shouldn't be eating because, you know, sheep, man, they stupid. And I had to protect another one from, from a predator that was coming. You know, I, I, I took care of the sheep. That's all. Yet his dedication in ensuring that that wayward flock was fed, protected, guided, was in fact preparation for a people he would one day lead. You're like, no, that seems like a stretch. Apparently the psalmist of Psalm 78 didn't think so because it is written, with upright heart, David shepherded. Interesting, the word choice there. Shepherded the people and guided them with his skillful hand. What else you do today, David? I got this sling I've been practicing with. Heard about slingers. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Slingers in the military. I've heard about them and I want to learn how to do that. So I've been working with this sling and I've gotten pretty good with it. You can, I can toss a rock in there. Boom. I can nail it. You won't believe what happened to me last week. I got my sling and I was practicing with it. And then out of nowhere, this lion came up over the hill and it was about to attack one of the sheep. And I just went with my instinct and I released it. And I socked that lion right between the eyes and it died. If that story doesn't sound familiar, it will in a couple of weeks. Why? Because sometimes it's preparing you for opportunity. But hear me this. Let's set that aside. Because more than opportunity, those things we do when nothing is beneath, beneath us, they shape our character. That's the biggest thing we can draw from the life of David. It shapes our character. We have a joking truth in our home. Sometimes I'll ask my kids uh, to take the trash out. I'll say, hey, can you take the trash out? Or Mama Cedar will say, to maybe Karis or, or can, hey, can you come help me unload the dishwasher, right? I'll say to one, can somebody please put the dog on a leash so it will stop using the front room as a bathroom? Please take the dog out. And we'll get this response. It's like when you ask that question, they revert to the two-year-old boneless toddler. All of a sudden, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and to be fair to my children, it's not always them. Sometimes my wife asks me to do things. And I, <laughs> you know, it's, I don't want to make them the bad guy here. I, she's got four children in her house. God bless her. So there are times that we'll do that and, and they'll go boneless. And the question comes, why do I have to do this? And one of the joking truths that we share in our house that I will say in response to that is it builds character. And what's awesome is almost every time Mama Sita will give me one of those glances out of the corner of her eye, lift her eyebrows and goes, it's funny because it's true. Because it is true. Catch this. Please hear me. It's the little things that give us the greatest opportunities to grow in our faithfulness, to exhibit faithfulness, for our character to be developed. Let me say it again. It's the little things that give us the greatest chance to exhibit faithfulness. Think about it. Faithfulness is easy if everyone's clapping for you. Good job. Way to go. Faithfulness is easy if they're paying you. 
Keep the money coming. Yes, sir, I'll be faithful to it. It's faithfulness in the small, in the mundane, in the ordinary. It's in life's monotony that we discover a character. I love how David Brooks, great author. I'm not sure that Brooks is a Christian, but I am certain in reading much of his work, his articles with the New York Times and one of his books, I am certain that God is tugging at his heart, pulling him on a journey. But David Brooks wrote an article years ago that turned into a wonderful book that you should read, Christian or not, called The Road to Character. And in that book, he uses different historical figures in order to kind of demonstrate character development and character components, traits in all of us. Brooks, he introduces the book the same way he did the article that the book came from. And he talks about two things, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues being those things uh, in life, the, the awards we won, the, the achievements we've had, the sales that we've made. And this is what he writes. He says, the resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. Catch this. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, Honest or faithful, were you capable of deep love? It is not our great achievements that are remembered. It is our character. That's what David exemplifies for us. The example we can look to. So then, the things that may feel pointless, mundane, Perhaps, again, even beneath you. They are actually shaping you. Shaping you, perhaps, to develop you for a future opportunity. Yes, but more than that. To develop in you patience and kindness and compassion. To develop in you humility and faithfulness. Now, you may say, Nate, but you can't say that because you're like, oh, nothing was beneath David. But Nate, all of that happened. David was doing that before he was anointed king. I read this week. I did the homework assignment, Nate. I read this passage. And you're saying nothing was beneath him, but we haven't gotten to the anointing yet. You're exactly right. I know what you're referring to, that the pasture came before the anointing. Because we read about he was off with the sheep and then he's brought in. Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. What verse? What verse? Verse 13. What verse? Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is... After David was anointed to be the next king, he went back to the sheep. Oh, I hate when I forget to say something in one service, and then the Holy Spirit says, say it in this service, and I'm like, oh man, I hope they watch it on YouTube. Listen, (laughs) David was anointed king and went back to the sheep. He didn't even say to his brothers, hey, I'm the next king. You go take care of the sheep. He didn't say to his father, hey, I'm the next king. I'm not taking care of your stinking sheep. 
No, you know why? Because nothing was beneath him. And it takes us to our next point. No one was beneath him. No one was beneath him. Look at what we read in 1 Samuel 16, 14, and 15. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Now, pause for just a second, because though we are looking at the life of David, let's stop a second with Saul, okay? Because sometimes there are difficult verses that we need to address. I want you to know this is not a statement. What's happening here is not for us to embrace as a theological understanding in the new covenant. If you're like, I have no idea what he just said. That's okay. Holler at me. We'll go get coffee together and we'll sit down and talk. What I want everyone to understand is this. This is not about our salvation. All right. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God moved and worked in a different way than since the cross of Jesus Christ. All right? That's the simplified version. And I want you to understand even more so that God's withdrawal of his Spirit was first of all all, about his anointing for Saul to be king. So the withdrawal of his spirit was, you're no longer going to be king. I'm going to move that anointing to someone else, okay? But second of all, God's withdrawal of his spirit from Saul is God in his sovereignty allowing evil forces to torment and to harm Saul. Hear me. As a result of Saul's own disobedience. Saul had repeatedly, consistently done the thing that God had said, don't do that. And so while God loves us and wants to protect us, there are times in life we need to recognize that it's not God punishing us, though it may feel that way to ourselves and to those who are writing our story. It may seem that way, but in fact, it is God saying, I'm trying to protect you, but in your own stubbornness, you keep exposing yourself to these tormenting spirits. Think of it like this. You got a kid in your home. You say, don't touch the front of the oven. It's hot. Don't touch the front of the oven. Right? That's how dads speak. That's Right? That's Mama's like, no, baby, no, baby, no, baby. Right? And you keep pushing their hand away. Now, mamas, you are way too compassionate for this. I know you are amazing. You have these hearts of deep love and compassion. As daddies, there comes a point where we go, go ahead, touch it. (laughs) I told you, I've told you not to touch it, but you don't listen to me, boy. So touch it in the name of Jesus. (laughs) And they touch it. Daddy, I told you. If they touch that hot stove, they will be tormented by a hot spirit. Are you with me? Little explanation. If you want to talk more about it, let's catch up. Let's talk. But let me give you that. So let's move back. As a result of this tormenting spirit, we read in verse 16 and 17 that they say, Let our Lord command servants before you to seek out someone who plays the harp, the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is on you, this man will play it and you will be well. So Saul said, give me a guy who can do it who can play well and bring him to me. Back to David. David, what you been doing? 
Other much, the sheep were behaving today. We just hung out in some cool pastures today. I found a, a little tree to kind of tuck myself up under and I started working on my heart. Started playing a little bit. Even wrote a song. I want to hear it. Behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David. More picture painting for you. Imagine you work for Microsoft. Just you run spreadsheets. That's what you do. That's your role. You run some spreadsheets. And imagine that, uh, let's go back, Billy Graham comes to your house and he pours oil on your head and he says, hey, I just wanted to let you know that um, you are going to be the next head of Microsoft. Bill Gates is going to step away and give everything to you. You'll now lead it all. Everything will be yours. Praise God. Just make sure you tie it to Movement Church. Um, but <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. I can't believe he would say something like that. Calm down. You, you don't worry about Microsoft anyway. So, <laughs> so you're working there. You continue to work. You go back the next day. A call comes from accounting, right? You're sitting there running your spreadsheets. They say, hey, somebody needs to, come, needs to see you. You're like, who is it? Well, actually, it's Bill Gates. In that moment, what are you thinking? It's going to happen. This is it. This is the moment. I'm going to, Jeff, I'm going to go to his office, and Bill Gates is going to say, it's all yours. He's going to step aside. Everything is yours. So you go in, and you're nervous. And you're like, oh, <laughs> yay, here we go. And he says, I got something to tell you. I need something from you. You're like, yes. He says, I need something from you. Wait for it. I need you to be my full-time on-call 24-7 balladeer. Sing me some old blue eyes or some Michael Buble. Go. Poppycock, Bill. You must be out of your mind if you think that I'm going to play you a song all of a sudden. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. You are out of your mind because I'm the man. All of this is my stuff. Go ahead. Get yours together. Pack it up. Two men in a truck and agitate the gravel, brother. <laughs> like that right there would be our natural response. David gets a call. And he comes before Saul. And the request placed of him is, will you play for me? And in that moment, David shows us no one was beneath him. He came to serve in a palace that would one day be his. He came to serve in a palace he already knew would one day be his. He came to serve people who would one day end up serving him. He chose humility. Nothing is beneath me. No one is beneath me. He didn't say, uh-uh, no, Saul, you better watch it. Because one day, the Lord came to me. You're in trouble, man. 
No, he didn't say, this isn't fair, God. This isn't fair, God. You told me this would be mine. Why? Because David understood a principle, and it is this. It matters little what you believe God will do through you one day if you are not faithful in what he's given you to do today. Let me put it another, perhaps more personal, relational way. It matters little who you think you will lead one day if you will not faithfully serve those God's given you today. David demonstrates this to us. He proves that to lead is to first serve. That no one is less than, no one is unworthy of our time. In fact, if you go on and continue in that same passage, you'll see this. And David came to Saul and entered his service. What do you need, Saul? I'll play a song for you. Play a song so that you can have relief. Because in this moment, that's the assignment the Lord has given me. To bring the tormented king some relief with the gift God has placed on my life. Even though I know I'm going to be king. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed. No thing is beneath me. No one is beneath me. That's the example David presents to me today, to you as well. So this week, your action steps are listed there on the paper as you came in. I will point out the reminder on there of who are your three. Like I don't know what that means. Well, I'll give the benefit of the doubt and say you must not have been here. And so you can go back and watch that. If you were here, I'm not going to shame you and say, why didn't you listen? But who are your three? But as it applies to this week, what's the mundane thing that God keeps placing in front of you that might actually be preparing you for what's next or more importantly, shaping your character now? List it, identify it, and then say, God, I see it now. Show me more how I can grow in this. Where is he calling you to serve? Who is he calling you to serve? Knowing no thing is beneath us. No one is beneath us. Father, we love you. We thank you for this sweet time together. We pray as we leave from this place that we would be a people who look to the example of David, but more than that, Look to be empowered by your spirit. We would live in such a way that each and every task, each and every opportunity is a moment in which we can grow to become more like you. 
and to serve right where you've placed us, whoever you've placed us before. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.